Hi everyone, welcome in a new episode of my podcast. Um, this week, I'm very happy I have Duncan Wardle with me and Duncan always had the job that I dreamt to have. He was the head of innovation in the Walt Disney Company, so all of you know that I'm a huge Disney fan. Duncan lives in Orlando, right next to Disney World, one of my favorite places in the world, so I am so thrilled that, is, that he is with us here today. Um, today, uh, Duncan doesn't work for Disney anymore. He's now an independent consultant and coach to make your companies more innovative, to make teams more creative, and to make sure that the ROI on your team and your staff will be as high as possible. And Duncan is an expert in that. I've seen him on stage and on the virtual stage many times, and he is just one piece of energy and people just love him. So I'm very happy that you're here with me, Duncan. Wow, shit. I don't think I can live up to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can. Um, ju just my opening question, I just have to ask this. How do you become the head of innovation at Disney? Luck. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, well, look, you know, I, I was, uh, well, it was luck, I suppose. I, I was at Edinburgh University. I was a young lad. And I was looking on the notice board, this is back in the 80s, uh, to see if I'd been chosen for the rugby team for the weekend on the notice board. And there was a picture of Mickey Mouse. I thought, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> so I just read it. And it was an opportunity to go along and see a presentation about a chance to come out and represent the United Kingdom in Epcot and work for a year at Disney. So I went along and I saw the presentation. And, you know, it was winter in Scotland, for God's sake. <laughs> so the chance to go and live in Florida for a year and somebody else is paying for your apartment and your swimming pool, you're like, yeah, okay, I could do this. So um, I went and after the interview, <laughs> after the presentation, there was a chance to interview and they were taking five students from the United Kingdom out. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to get this, but I'll go along. And it was, this is the first American person I've ever met, don't forget. So this was, it, it was in one of those long interview rooms where you have to walk all the way up to the table where the person's sitting. And it was one of those tented tables where the cloth is over the, the table. And there was a lady sitting on the other side of the table and we chatted. And at the end of the, the interview, she stood up to shake my hand. Well, we've, we've become good friends ever since, but Becky is from Texas and she's six foot seven. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I was like, oh my God, they can't all be that tall. <laughs> so I got the job, came out here for a year. I was a barman at the Rose and Crown pub, my first job at the Walt Disney Company. And then at the end of the year, I went back to London and I was also working in a pub. <laughs> and uh, I called the Walt Disney Company every day for 27 days uh, I was, and, until the receptionist got so fed up of taking my phone calls, she insisted that the boss give me a cup of coffee and a chat. So I went along and I was hired as the coffee boy. And my job was to go and get six cappuccinos a day for my boss and to collate and fold 50 press kits a day. That was my job. I did it for six months, my first job. It was part-time. It wasn't full-time. And about three months into the role, I was told, you're going to be the character coordinator tonight at the royal premiere of Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the presence of the Princess of Wales, Diana. I thought, right. well, what the hell's a what's a character coordinator? They said, oh, you just take care of the character. I was like, oh, okay, all right. So I went along. And uh, this, was <laughs> this was the day when I found out what a contingency plan was because I didn't have one. And so um, my job was simply to stand at the bottom of the stairs. Roger Rabbit would come down the stairs to meet, greet the princess as she came in along the receiving line. But a contingency plan would tell you, if you're going to bring a seven-foot rabbit <laughs> with feet that are th about, I don't know, 
that are about two feet long, you might want to measure the width of the steps through which he's going to have to walk down. So halfway down the staircase, Roger tripped over his own feet and is now hurtling directly through the air towards the head of the Princess of Wales. <laughs> Whereupon two royal protection officers, literally, they didn't hesitate. They took him out in midair. I mean, they just flattened him. So there's a, you can still find it on Reuters. It's a black and white photograph. That's how old I am. It's a, it was a picture of Roger on the floor with two heavies on top of him and a 21-year-old little PR guy in the background, Duncan, face like, oh shit, I'm fired. <laughs> And so I didn't go to the office the next day. I got a call. They said, where are you? I said, I'm at home. I thought I was fired. They said, no, no, this is exactly the sort of publicity we needed for Roger Rabbit. I was like, wow, I can make a career out of this. And so for the next 20 years, I did. I got to do some of the most mad, outrageous, audacious stunts, events, helping uh, Pixar and Lucasfilms develop storylines, helping the parks come up with new attraction ideas. And I was just like a kid in a candy store. Um, and then I got a call from the chairman 10 years ago. He said, look, you're the guy with all the big ideas who actually seems to get them done through a very large corporate approval mm -hmm. process. Um, you're gonna be in charge of innovation and creativity, to which my response was, what the hell's that? <laughs> and he said, I don't know, we just need more of it. I was like, okay, good, thanks for the brief. Um, <laughs> and so the first thing I did, I thought, okay, I don't know what this is. Um, but the goal was to embed a culture of innovation into everybody's DNA. That was the goal. So the first thing I did, we surveyed 5,000 people at Pixar, Lucasfilms, Marvel, ESPN, ABC, Disney. And we asked, hey, what, what gets in the way? What's, you know, what's stopping you from being more innovative at work? Mm -hmm. the, number, the number one answer by a long way, and it's the same everywhere I go, you always get the same number one answer is, I don't have time. Yeah. still the number one about 68 percent of most companies will say i don't have time to think uh, number two uh, we are risk averse we've got quarterly results to meet so we can't take a risk number three we say we're consumer centric but actually we care more about our um, quarterly results than our consumer therefore we're actually more product centric mm -hmm. number four ideas tend to get stuck diluted or killed as they move through our approval processes and number five we all have a different definition of innovation so we're all heading in a different direction so those were kind of the five yeah. So, um, and then we tried four models of innovation. Model number one was easy. I hired IDEO. I'm not sure if you're familiar with IDEO, but they are considered to be the gurus of innovation consultancy. They help Apple a lot. And I thought, okay, I'm going to hire these guys and the brief is going to be make me look good. <laughs> not quite. I'm being a bit facetious. But uh, so they would come in and they'd run some innovation projects for me for three months, four months. And uh, they were very good at what they did. But guess what? They didn't have to execute it. They were just giving recommendations. And, and then they would leave. And then you sat there and thought, okay, how much have we learned about how they do what they do? And of course the answer was you hadn't because they wouldn't, didn't want you to because otherwise you wouldn't hire them again. So you thought, okay, that's not working. So we thought, okay, let's try another model of innovation. Let's create an innovation team. I'll be in charge of it. What could possibly go wrong? Um, well, there's pros and cons of having an innovation team. The pro is you have a catalyst for change who wakes up every morning worried about one thing focusing the organization on becoming and giving them the skill set to become more innovative. The downside is this, and we've, we noticed it, is, so for example, take any company, does anybody outside of the legal department do legal work? No. Does anybody outside the sales department do sales? No. So does anybody outside the innovation department, what do they do? Oh yeah, no, we've got an innovation team. I don't have to innovate. I'll just keep doing the work. Same thing I've always done. I'm safe. 
So it's actually, it's, it's not a great message to send to your organization. And so number three, third model, was we created an accelerator program, sort of like a shark tank. We would go out and uh, find some young pieces of interesting tech startups. We would take a 50% stake in their work. They, would, they didn't know how to scale it. And of course, Disney knows how to scale things. So we would bring them in and mentor them. And it, the, what that enabled us to do was to bring products and services to market much quicker than we would normally do, simply because these people were, were not worried about our approval processes, our hierarchy, our politics, or our turf. They just came in and did good work. Uh, however, <clears throat> if you asked what percentage of the population that touched within the, the Disney company, less than 1%. So you thought, okay, we still have not achieved our goal of embedding a culture of innovation into everybody's DNA. So I thought, okay. So I thought, how might we create a toolkit? A toolkit that um, makes innovation easy, creativity tangible, and the process fun. What do I mean by that? Well, here's the thing. Innovation is a very nebulous word. Uh, we hear all that, and this is people say, why did you leave eventually? Well, I was there 30 years. You know, I got the bronze, Jim Lee Cricket. Thank you for 30 magical years of service statue. Um, and there's a monstrous gap in the market, and it's actually got bigger since COVID. Um, it's this. All of our C-suites are standing up there saying, we must innovate, we must take risks, we must think differently, we must be brave. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. But none of them are sharing us how. And you can't change your culture by talking about it. You have to create a toolkit that people choose to use when you're not around. That's culture change. So if you can make innovation easier for people, make creativity tangible, but actually make the process enjoyable so they want to use it when you're not there, that is culture change. Okay. And so, um, so that, that was so successful and there was such a gap in the market and we started to get asked, even though we were inside Disney, we had companies like McDonald's and Coca-Cola and other companies at Apple, partners of Disney saying, hey, could you come do this for us? And I started just, and I thought, okay, I gotta go do something. You know, and it's the great thing for me in the last couple of years is I've worked with Apple, I've worked with McDonald's, I've worked with the NBA, I've worked, I've worked all over the world. And the beauty of that is I'm learning. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm learning with all these different industries. It could be automotive, it could be tech, it could be financial firms, it could be legal firms, helping them innovate, but learning their industries at the same time. One of the tools I use is that I, I enjoy a lot is it's about looking outside of your industry for insights for innovation. Mm -hmm. And so um, by actually borrowing from a different one. And I think probably my favorite project of the last three or four years was, because one of the things you hear when you ask, why don't you innovate? People say, we don't have the resources. I, sorry, forgive me, but I think that's nonsense. I think if um, necessity is the mother of invention, then uh, creativity is almost certainly the father. The people who are in fact the most innovative and most creative are the people with the least amount of money. Um, and you see it, if you know that, if you saw Slumdog Millionaire, that slum really exists. It's the Derby slum. It's in the middle of Mumbai. Five million people living in an area the same size as eight Disney theme parks. So you automatically think squalor. No, not so. Innovation, creativity, entrepreneurialism, it's, it's on steroids. And so what the project I was given was how might we create light where there is no electricity? And I thought, okay, I haven't got a clue how to do that, but hey, let's go give it a go. <laughs> so off we went. And we were sitting in a, a small cafe one day and the spotlight from the ceiling hit a plastic bottle, you know, one of the small plastic bottles that we drink out of. And I noticed that it, it, when it hit the bottle, the light refracted around the bottle to about half a foot past the bottle. So then I lifted the bottle up towards the light and I could refract the light out to about three or four foot around the diameter of the bottle. 
And then I took off the branding label, you know, that little plastic label that goes around the side of the bottle. And I refracted the light out to about five feet past the bottle. Then I started playing with the level of water inside the bottle. And I could get it up to, and then I cut the lip off the bottle. And we could refract the light up to about eight to 10 feet around the bottle. So we walked outside, found a hut with no windows that was completely dark cut a hole in the ceiling, stuck the bottle through it, and during daylight hours lit the hut up to about 10 feet. Okay. So I wrote to the uh, CMO of Evian and I said, hey, you're about to trash the planet with 500,000 empty plastic bottles. I tell you what, why don't you give them to me? And by the way, I can't afford shipping, so I need you to ship them for free. These people can't afford it. And by the way, you can't put your brand on the bottle because they need the light. <laughs> <laughs> and, so he, and so he did. And we lit 500,000 huts where there was no electricity. And so lack of resources, forgive me, but no. Uh, here's the biggest challenge for, I think, all Western culture. Uh, why do I believe India will be the world's largest superpower by 2050? Not because their population exceeds China this year. Not because the percentage of Indians underneath the age of 25 far outstrips China. Not because the percentage of people in India speak English far outstrip China. No, nothing to do with any of that. Because the vast majority of the population cannot afford a formal education. And therefore, you are breeding 1.4 billion entrepreneurs. And I would take 1.4 billion entrepreneurs against any corporate enterprise any day of the year. Creativity, uh, education is killing creativity. And, uh, and here's the importance of this. The first, thing, first day at school, the first thing your teacher tells you is color in, in between the lines. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's not a good start. Uh, and so, and, and then as a child, you used to ask why, 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 why again? Insights for innovation come on the fourth or fifth why, not the first why. Your data only goes one or two whys deep. But if you, if you run a survey, if I were to ask you, why do you go to Disney on holiday? You would tick the box, I go for the new rides and new attractions. But that's not actually true, is it? And so that would tell me to spend $240 million on a capital investment strategy. But if you pause for a moment and act like a child, childlike, not childish, and say, well, why do you go for the rides? Well, I like it's a small world. Well, why on earth do you like it's a small world? I like the music. I remember the music. Why is that significant? Well, it reminds me of the time I used to go with my mum. Why is that important to you today? Oh, I take my daughter now. On the fourth or fifth way, you've got to the insight for innovation. It's got nothing to do with the capital investment strategy whatsoever and everything to do with her personal memory and nostalgia. That's a communication campaign. But then we go to school and we get a job and we're told there's only one right answer. So we stop asking the second why. Now, why is this important? Here's why it's important. In the next decade, it is estimated that artificial intelligence will strip away between 20 and 30% of the jobs in the Western world. However, so how are we going to compete with these robots? Right? How could the human race compete 10 years from today? Well, guess what? You were born creative when you were a small boy. You got a toy for Christmas, but it came in an enormous box. You took the toy out of the box, you played with the toy for two hours, and then you spent the week playing with the box. Why? Because it was anything you wanted it to be. And so, but then we grow up and create, we're told you're not creative. Stop, stop asking the second why, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the thing though. These skill sets are some of the very few skill sets that will continue to belong to the human race that can't be programmed into artificial intelligence. Um, they are the four traits that we are born with, creativity, uh, imagination, uh, intuition, and curiosity. Uh, I've, got, I've spoken to three or four AI experts in the last couple of years, and I've asked them, do you believe we will be able to program creativity, um, intuition, imagination, and curiosity or empathy into AI in the next decade? And the answer is no. Now, fi finance, accounting, analysis, critical thinking, planning, strategy, uh-uh, goodbye. 
that that belongs to the robots. You don't know it yet, but it does, and it's gone. And you can say, oh, no, 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 it is. You just don't know it yet. Because that can be programmed. And if it can be programmed, you, you lose. And so it's, it's, so for example, intuition, let me take an example of intuition. You have, so have you ever looked at the back of the head of somebody you think looks really hot and they immediately turn around and stare at you? Yeah, we all have. Well, how did they know you were staring at them? Well, guess what? You have a hundred billion neurons in your first brain, which is inside your skull. And you have a hundred million neurons inside your second brain, which is in your stomach. And most of the decisions you make during the day as a consumer, what do you say? I went with my gut. And so it is a remarkably powerful tool. Uh, one that we often, here's the thing. We all, there's an over-reliance on big data today. And big data is getting better and better and better. And there's no doubt about that. But sometimes if you're only looking your big data, you're only looking where your competition is looking. And if you're only looking where your competition is looking, well, how will you find that one insight that will allow you to innovate that somebody else can't do? Because let's face it, all your competition is the same data as you do. And so um, an example was we were tasked by Disneyland Paris to get more people to come more often and spend more money. Our data told us who could afford the brand, who had an affinity to the brand, who was shopping online, and who was a 10 out of 10 of I'm coming this year, every year for the last four years, but they hadn't come. So clearly our data was missing something. My intuition told me that. And I put it to the organization that these people, and it was the UK market we were targeting at the time, were either liars or procrastinators <laughs> because they told us they were 10 out of 10 of I'm coming, but they didn't come. So we went to find out more about them and uh, now here's my advice if you've never lived with one of your consumers for a day you're missing out i was too arrogant i was the executive vice president of uh, public relations for the disney company i'd never met a consumer before well that's not pretty cool is it uh, we do focus groups uh, stop doing focus groups they're a waste of money why are they a waste of money because do you live in a house or an apartment with a two-way mirror with people staring through at you no you don't so uh, it's not the most relaxed environment for getting insights out of people. Um, it's a very false environment. And by the way, if you're going to do focus groups, for goodness sake, stop inviting individual people to come because your marketing department tells you we need value for money and we need to get a market segment. So we need four different people in the room. Okay, great. 14 individuals will always tell you what they think you want to hear. And um, however, when you get them in their living room, that it's not just what they say that will uh, confirm or deny your data, it's what you see inside their living rooms. But far more importantly, I call it the self-regulating honesty policy. When couples are together, husbands and wives, uh, boyfriends and boyfriends, uh, boyfriends and girlfriends, it doesn't matter. When couples are together, we police each other. So let's say I asked you, if you ask a man by himself, what do you do at Disney? He's going to say, oh, I go on the thrill rides. I'm a manly man. But if his wife is sitting next to him or, or his husband, they might say, um, actually, you did Small World 17 times back to back last year and really loved it. And you get the real honesty out of the second couple, not the first. And that's where you get your insights for innovation. So we, uh, by the way, do you have kids? I have two. Yeah, two boys. Okay, so, okay, so we're, we'll try and exercise. So okay. uh, again, our going in hypothesis was we build it, they will come. Why? Because we've always done it that way. And that's how many companies, that's how companies think, well, we've been successful. So what? <laughs> if you've been successful in the last hundred years, chances are you're not going to be successful in the next decade. Uh, but we left, that's the way we've always done it. We build rides, they will come. That was our going in hypothesis. Well, that's a $240 million investment, so get it right. So by simply living with a consumer for the day, we found an insight that we could never have found in our data. And by the way, if it was in our data, it would have been on page 37, bullet point 14, and we'd have either been asleep or we couldn't feel it. Mm -hmm. So now let me ask you a question before I talk about the insight we found. Uh, you have two boys, you said, yes? Yes. Okay. Uh, close your eyes for me. Okay. 
think of a close your eyes. That's what you said, right? Yeah, close your eyes. Yep. Now, while keep your eyes closed, think of a particular photograph that's somewhere in your house of the two boys, and tell me which room it's in. Uh, it's in the living room. Okay. Is it on a wall, on a bookshelf? Where is it? It's on a wall. Okay. And describe the picture to us, if you would, please. It's a family picture. The, the, the two boys and uh, me and my wife in, um, at the ocean in Belgium. Oh, okay. Nice. And um, what are the names of your boys? Sieben and Matisse. Sieben and Matisse. How old were they the day that photograph was taken? Um, let me think. That was um, six and four. And how old are they today? Nine and 11. So three or four, five years old. Uh, yeah. So here's what we found. We found one clue in a house. Now, when you find one clue, it's an individual data point. It means nothing. But if you don't write it down, you'll never know. So I noticed the same thing as you. There was a photograph on the mantelpiece. And I said to the woman, how old are your children, love? Four or five? She goes, oh, no, love. They're 14 or 15. Write it down. It's a clue. And it means nothing at the time. But don't forget, our going in hypothesis was we build it, they will come. When we got back together, 26 of us had been out living with a family for a day. We all found we had the same clue. When we asked the parents how old the uh, children were in the photograph or, and in reality, they were in fact anywhere from two years older to 20 years older. How do I know that to be true? Well, your photographs were at least five years old. And for those of you listening today who are too young to have children, how do I know that to be true? Because your parents still have that dorky one of you from school in their living room that you wish they got rid of years ago. And so, we thought there's something here that our data's not telling us. So we went back and dug a bit more. We thought, what's going on here? Do we not print photographs of our children anymore? Yes, of course we do. We print photographs of their bar mitzvahs, of their graduations, of their weddings. But so why is this photograph still here? This one that's 5, 10, 15, 20 years old. Parents will tell you at first pass they want their children to go to junior school, kindergarten, middle school, high school, college, uh, graduate, be happy, healthy, and successful. That's what we want for our kids, isn't it? Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah no it's not you want them back in that little photo frame when you were a god when they were very young and you walked in the door and you were a superhero in their eyes uh, and you desperately want those days back but you can't have them why do we love our grandchildren so much Boom, they're right back in the frame and so we thought gosh there's something here so again this was pure intuition no data to support it in fact it was challenging our data and so we dug a bit deeper and here's what we found in talking to five mums and uh, they were talking and they described three what i called bittersweet transitions three things that take place between a parent and a child and the moment you step through it you both bitterly regret it you both bitterly want to step quickly want to step back but you both know it's too late now i'm a dad i've got intuition and so the the three events they described are described basically the same for me I remember exactly where I was the day my son walked around the corner on Christmas Eve. He was at nine or 10 at the time. His eyes were half full of tears, just about to cry. And he said, Papa, is that what? He goes, are you Santa Claus? And in that one split second, imagination gone, creativity gone. But what hurt so much was what he had truly said was, I'm not your little boy anymore, daddy. I'm growing up. That hurt. Yeah. Now, uh, girls, you will not remember where you were that fateful day, but I do because I'm a dad. And dads know what they were. I don't care if it was one year ago, 20 years ago. Girls don't even remember this ever took place. Fathers do. Uh, I know exactly where I was. Uh, I was, uh, it was, uh, my daughter was 13 at the time. 
It was a Tuesday morning at about 10.30. I know exactly where I was standing the day she dropped my left hand in public yeah, because she didn't want old daddy's hand in public anymore because it was embarrassing. Now, girls, you don't remember it, but fathers do. You go home and text them tonight and ask them, where were you when I dropped your hand for the first time? And they'll tell you which hand it was because it's a seminal moment between a father and a daughter. <laughs> and the last one for us was when we dropped our daughter off at college for the first time. We hugged, we cheered, we laughed. We got in the car and cried her eyes out all the way back to Orlando in Florida. And so our going in hypothesis, don't forget, was we build it, they will come. Coming out of the project, having spent a day with a consumer and challenging our data to confirm or deny it was correct, we realized that mum does not wake up in the morning worried about whether or not Disneyland Paris is going to have new rides this year, but she does wake up every morning worried about how quickly her children are growing and how she wants to make special memories for them while they still believe while they still hold my hand, while they're still here. That's a segmented communication campaign, one that drove record revenues, record attendance, and turned a very product-centric, we know best culture, into a consumer-centric culture, where it is now mandatory for every Disney executive to work on the frontline uh, positions in a theme park one day a year, and in the living room of one of our consumers every two years. Can I, can I ask something about that, Duncan? Uh, mm. You know, you've said many, many interesting things, and, and there are some of the items that you touched that I would like to have some, some more input on, if, if that's possible. Like, at a certain moment, if you want to really change culture, you need to provide people with tools that they can use when you're not around, so that they know what to do and how to react. Now, but, but it's not just that, that they choose to use because okay. they're fun. Yeah. So it's not just, it's about, yes, you've got to give them a tool they know how to use tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, but you've also got to make it enjoyable. Otherwise, why would they use it? They want to use it. Now, now in my opinion, in my experience, Disney is, is a company that is leading in terms of customer experience and, and you know, all the cast members are, are trying to do their best to, to give you a pleasant experience. Now, how does this process happen? Uh, what kind of tools did you provide? And on the other hand, how did you make sure that they were willing to use it? How, does, how did that process go? Yep, make it fun. So for example, where are you and what are you doing when you get your best ideas? Where are you? Me, um, walking, walking in the forest. Right. Okay. All right. So you're gonna hear people say shower, jogging, walking, commuting, falling asleep, waking up. But the only things you'll never hear are the words at work. Well, that's a bummer, isn't it? Because we're paid to have big ideas at work. Well, so now picture that last verbal argument you were in and you're screaming at somebody, they're screaming at you and you walk away and you go get a coffee and it's five minutes after the argument's over, you're beginning to relax and boom, what just pops into your head? The beautiful, perfect, killer one-liner. That one perfect line. Oh yeah, if I'd have said that, I'd have had him. Oh yeah, the perfect line. Does it ever come during the argument? No, it does not. Always five minutes afterwards, why? Because in an argument, your brain is very busy defending itself. Uh, and, uh, but guess what your brain looks like in the office? It's very busy <laughs> doing emails, presentations, Outlook, Zoom calls, uh, end of year reports, blah, 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 blah. And we hear ourselves say, what was the number one barrier to innovation? Oh, yeah, that's right. I don't have time to think. But the split second you gave yourself time to think, you walked away from the argument, you came up with a killer one-liner. You went for a walk in the forest, you came up with a big idea. So how do I get you there on demand and why is that important? We live in the three or four brain states during the course of a given day. Most of us live in what beta, which is, I call busy beta. That brain state where the door, otherwise scientifically known as the reticular activating system, between your conscious and subconscious brain is firmly closed. 
uh, during which you only have access to 13% of the capacity of your brain, your conscious brain. So my job is to open that door between your conscious and subconscious brain to place you metaphorically back in the shower. Now, you can't bring showers to the office. So how do I do that? I run an energizer. It's a fun exercise. It lasts about 60 seconds designed specifically to make you laugh. Why? Because the moment I hear laughter, I know I've opened that door between your conscious and subconscious brain uh, to give you access to all that stimulus, all every place you've ever worked, every industry you've ever worked in. And then for those of you who said falling asleep or waking up, well, you could take beds to the office, but that probably wouldn't be very popular. Um, here's the thing. The, there is an expression called when the penny drops. It's that eureka moment when I get the big idea. It came from Thomas Edison. He used to practice thoughtful theta. Uh, and he would fall asleep in an armchair with a penny between his knees, uh, seated with a tin tray on the floor. As he would fall asleep, his muscles would relax. The penny would drop. It would hit the tin tray. It would make a noise. It would wake him up. And he would write down whatever he was thinking. And you could think, well, that's stupid. Okay, great. Well, who had more inventions in the 20th century than anybody else? Oh, that's right, Thomas Edison. Now, one of the tools in terms of customer excellence is this. Um, it's about re-expressing the, the challenge to help people think differently. If I ask you what to put in a car wash, you'll tell me water, soap, brushes, vacuum, and a dryer. If I say, well, I'll tell you what, let's call it an auto spa. Suddenly people go, ooh, champagne, aromatherapy, masseuse, mani-pedi. All I did was re-express the challenge and in less than five seconds got you to stop thinking the way you always do and help you think differently. On July 17th, 1955, as he opened the doors to Disneyland, Walt Disney created this tool. And instead of, he said, we will not have any customers in our park. We will only have guests. Now think about how you feel when you're treated as a customer. Think about how you feel when you're treated as a guest. He said, not only that, we will not have any employees. We'll only have cast members. There'll be cast for a role in the show. They'll wear a costume, not a uniform. They'll work on stage or backstage. And with that simple re-expression, redefined the level of hospitality that has never been replicated or duplicated. Now fast forward and say, okay, how does that help me drive my business results today? All right. In 2011, if we could if asked the question that every company asks themselves today, and by the way, stop asking it because Generation Z is going to put you out of business if you continue to ask it because they care more about purpose than profit. Not only will they not buy your products and services 10 years from today, if they don't believe in what you stand for, they won't want to work for you. I don't care how big you are as a brand, you're going out of business if people don't want to work for you. So instead of saying, how might we make more money? If we'd said that, we'd have put the gate price up by 3%. And yes, we'd have made our quarterly results. That's called iteration. Iteration post-COVID, you're gone. You've got to, it, it, now is the time to reinvent your business model. Um, so instead of saying, how might we uh, make more, you know, increase the gate price 3%, we said, how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point? We just turned the challenge on its head. Instead of saying, how might we make more money? We said, how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point? Everybody really knew what it was called standing in line. So we said, well, what if there were no lines? What if we eliminated all the front desks in our hotels? How are you going to do that? Don't know. If you know the answer, it's iteration. It's not innovation. It should scare you. Um, we said, well, what if we eliminated the turnstile at the entrance of the park and people didn't have to wait to get in or to wait for their favorite ride or to pay for merchandise or food? Well, our, uh, and so RFID, RFID technology already existed. All we did was put it in a little plastic band, call it Disney's magic band. It sits on your wrist. It is your room key. You don't need to check in or check out of the hotel anymore. It is your theme park ticket. You swipe and go. There are no turnstiles. It has your reservations, your favorite character meet and greets or your favorite three rides for the day. You swipe and go. You want an item of merchandise sent to your hotel room? Swipe it once. If you want it sent to your house, swipe it twice. You want your fast food on the pickles on the side. Pinocchio's Village House for lunch today, two hot dogs. Uh, and I, I save it on my smartphone when I walk into the restaurant 
the restaurant knows I'm at table 47, the food comes fresh to me. Had we have started by saying, how might we make more money? We'd have made 3%. But by reversing the question and asking how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point, the average guest at Walt Disney World today has two hours free time they didn't have four years ago. What has that resulted in? Record intent to return, record intent to recommend, record revenues. What do we do with our free time? We spend money. Data collection, millions of people pouring through the gates every year. Live crowdsourcing the future product and service of every product and service Disney creates by simply telling them what they like and what they don't by where they go with their magic band. And so, it's look, go back eight months ago. You used to go to restaurants. Now you probably use whatever the equivalent of Uber Eats is in your country. You used to go to supermarkets. Now you probably have Instacart deliver your groceries to you. Will I ever go back to a supermarket again as long as I live? No, I never wanted to go there in the first place. It was a necessity. Um, and so gyms, do we go to gyms anymore? No, we don't go to gyms anymore. We use Peloton. Will we go back to restaurants, gyms, shops, retail stores, sports arenas in the frequency and numbers that we used to? No, we will not. Um, so since 2005, it's now 2021, so 16 years, we have had Ebola, bird flu, H1M1, SARS, and uh, COVID. That's one every three years. So uh, we were fortunate enough to escape four out of the five. Does that mean we won't have another one three to five years from today? Of course we will. So the shift to virtual is coming and it's coming fast. So, you know, take companies. If I don't have to pay for an office building, think of the money I could save on corporate real estate. I'll just give you an Oculus headset and you can work from home. Um, business travel. Business travel's gone. It's over. It's history. Well, don't be daft, Duncan. Don't be so stupid. Don't be so dogmatic. No. Look, we used to fly from Orlando to Los Angeles on what was called the Disney shuttle. It was the 7 a.m. Delta flight every Monday morning. And it was basically full of Delta, uh, Disney people going out for what would be a two or three hour meeting. Well, that's a five hour flight for a two or three hour meeting. Uh, and so it, COVID or not COVID, that was fiscally irresponsible. That's gone. That belongs to the world of Zoom and everything else that's followed. So business travel, it's history. And so take, for example, my industry. Uh, last year, I spoke or gave training workshops in 112 cities in 365 days. On March the 15th this year, I became unemployed like all of us. My industry was gone. So I had to reinvent myself into a virtual world. I can now deliver, uh, instead of delivering three or four workshops a week because you have to fly in between them, I could do three or four a day if I need to. Um, can I speak in Chinese today? Mandarin, Cantonese, Hindi, uh, French, German, Portuguese, Spanish, Hebrew, you name it, yes I can, live through an artificial intelligence robot with subtitles directly onto your screen in wherever you are through an AI robot, which now picks up new markets for me. Uh, have I created virtual campuses where you can come in, brand the campus, your company, Yes, uh, you all come in as little avatars. It's got virtual meeting rooms, virtual breakout rooms, virtual soccer pitches, virtual bars, a place where people can meet. And then with Oculus, wow, I mean, come on. Look, it's a $300 investment. It's not a lot of money if your employees are working from home and emotionally feel like you're in the same room. I did an experiment last week with a lady from South Africa and London where we were all virtual. Uh, we were all in our various cities, but this lady came up to me with her virtual hand, handed me a virtual pen, which didn't exist. Uh, I took it out of her virtual hand with my virtual hand, which also didn't exist, and wrote on a virtual whiteboard and virtual ink, neither of which existed, and handed her back the virtual pen. And you just thought, shit, did we just do that? Um, and so, look, so for example, sports. Do I think sports will be live sports 20 years from today? No, virtual sports 20 years from today. Why? Well, the pandemic was hastened it, but it was already on the way. 
I did an experiment with the National Basketball Association a couple of years ago, who believed that virtual sports revenue will exceed real sports revenue in less than 20 years. Again, well, don't be stupid. How could that possibly happen? Well, okay. Go back to four years ago now, we piloted the Orlando Magic virtual team against the New York Knicks virtual team. A bunch of 16-year-old gamers who get drafted just like a basketball player get paid. If you go to an Orlando Magic real game before COVID, they got about 14,000 people to a game. But we took their virtual team up to New York in Madison Square Gardens. They got about 54,000 people to come watch, 3 million people online, and made almost half a million dollars selling virtual merchandise that didn't exist. Um, that's already here today. Right now, now you think about the brick phone. If you're as old as me, you remember the phones that used to have to hold in two hands. Today we have an iPhone. I believe the Oculus headset, if they're smart, will be a pair of contact lenses seven years from today. And that's game over for the physical world. And if you think I'm mad, that's fine. I don't think yeah, I, my mother would agree with you. And to a certain extent, so do I. There's a fine line between madness and genius. Um, we're going virtual, folks. And so uh, get on board or get out because the real, the virtual, here's the thing. Here's what, here's what Walt understood so well. He said experience first, retail second. So if I were to ask, so, so you think, well, that's nuts. Why would I do that? Well, if I were to ask you to name the six most successful shopping miles per square foot anywhere in the world, you would not think to mention the six Disney theme parks. Well, they are. Why? Because Walt put experience first, retail second. So how does that work in real life? Well, Universal Studios, up until, what, 10 years ago, uh, they were the hard steel ride guys and Disney were the immersive entertainment guys. But Universal then bought the Harry Potter franchise. Up until then, they could sell a Coca-Cola for $2.50. Today, it's called a Butterbeer and it's $14.50. That plastic stick you wouldn't give me a dollar for? No, no, sir. This is Voldemort's wand and it's $54 plus tax. And so, so but if you don't create an experience, then Amazon has your name and you're gone because then you're just a product and you're a commodity and I can buy you online. But now, now, there, now this is interesting. Huh? You're, you're very, um, uh, how, how should I say it, extreme on, on the digital part in post-COVID, huh? that it's, everything's virtual. It was, it was, coming, it was coming anyway. It was the, coming. Pandemic, the, the pandemic has accelerated it. But uh, if there's going to be another pandemic three years from now and three years from then, then guess what, folks? It's coming. But on the other hand, you also mentioned that if you create a cool experience in the offline world, that people will be able to come. Like, imagine Disney World in 2023. My estimation would be that there are going to be millions of people in Disney World again enjoying the magic. Oh, here's what's going to happen in the short term. In the short term, we're so desperate to hug somebody that we've never met before, right? Because we're fed up of being at home. And of course, everything, the live conference industry, theme parks, well, they will explode in the next couple of years because we're so desperate to get back out. But, exactly. the next, but, then, but, but, but the seed has already been sown, right? And so whether it's Instacart, Uber Eats, Peloton, that's already on the way and it's just going to get... So for example, cash. Cash, I have to hand over cash. I have to touch machines to put my PIN number in. No, people want a touchless society now. And so that will, that will be gone too. And so if you want to compete, you're going to have to create, if you want to compete in the physical world, you'll have to have an incredible experience. Like, for example, I don't know if you're familiar with a museum of ice cream that was so incredibly successful because they just created an amazing experience. There wasn't really much substance to it. Um, 
But the bigger player here is the virtual world. There is no question about it. We are moving. So, for example, if you're as old as me, you remember the Jetsons. Well, now go back and watch an addition, one episode of the Jetsons. Did they have Zoom? Yes, they had Zoom. Did they, did they virtually live from home all the time? Yes, they virtually live from home. Did they have their own capsules? Yes, they did. They, did they, they, it's, if you actually watch everything that the Jetsons had when it was made in the very early 1960s, it's already all come true. And yes, they had a robot made. <laughs> and yes, Mr. Jetson did his work from a, essentially what looked like a computer with one finger. That's all he ever did. Uh, will we get there? Yes. In the next five years? No, of course not. Um, innovation never comes quite as fast as we think it will, except I will make one exception. Virtual will now because the pandemics will force it. Yeah, yeah, I, I have to agree with you. It's, it's really, you know, 2020 was a very horrible year for, for in most domains. But if you look at the evolution of consumer behavior and the acceleration of, of some of the things that I've been working on, it's really fascinating to see how things are, are, are changing and, and what the impact of it is. So I think it's going to be fascinating the next few years to follow all these. Well, look at, look at ed education. If you say the word online training, the first word out of anybody's mouth is the word boring. Well, why is it boring? It doesn't have to be boring. What if you can make it fun? I believe that the, the physical campuses of all these universities will uh, give way to virtual online gaming education. If you look at some of the games today, my son learned more about the history of Venice through one particular video game that he played than he would ever have learned out of reading a boring book with a boring professor. And mm -hmm. so I think the future of education is gaming. I think gaming will come into every industry uh, very, very fast. Look at Pokemon Go and the success of it. Well, so, okay, banking is boring. Going to the supermarket is boring. Uh, going to most retail stores are boring. But what if I could gamify it? What if I could make it entertainment, edutainment, if you will? Um, so, for example, I saw, actually, there we are. Now, I was in Brussels, ooh, two years ago now. And I was in a museum. I, can't, I couldn't tell you which one it was. It was an art gallery. And I saw a little boy walk up to a painting on a wall um, he was probably only three and he tried to swipe it because to him it was just an iPad. And I thought, hmm, okay, museums inherently boring. However, how might we through augmented reality allow us today with an iPhone? I walk into the museum, I'm looking at the sunflowers by Vincent van Gogh. I don't know too much about him, but yet suddenly he steps out of the portrait and, and holds out his ear and says, hey, let me tell you how why I cut my ear off. Wow. And that, by the way, is we should have been doing that three years ago. If museums want to survive, augmented, virtual reality is a subset of augmented reality. Augmented reality will blow past virtual reality in a world where we will be able to see uh, by holding up our phones or eventually even through our contact lenses. I'll be able to walk past a, a store three or four years from today, maybe five or six, I don't know exactly how long it'll take. And my contact lenses, I'll be able to see into the store. I'll be able to see that they have that pink blouse that I want. And it's, I know what size it is and I can see it's in stock and uh, I'll click to buy and it'll be delivered to my house. Boom, thanks very much, have a nice day. Yeah, true, true, yeah. Um, Duncan, let's end with a concrete tip for the listeners. If they wanna improve their customer experience tomorrow, what would be the one thing to start? Go and live with them for a day and stop being so stop being so arrogant oh i'm an executive i'm too important 
Um, you, you, the, um, the insights you get from spending a day with a consumer, because you haven't for many, 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 you're so far removed from your consumer as an executive. You don't know what's important to them. You don't know what's going on inside their house and your data can't tell you. And if you've only got data, as I mentioned earlier on, you've got the same data as your competition. And so just make it mandatory for everybody in your organization one day a year to go spend a day in the living room of one of your consumers. It will ground you in becoming a consumer centric organization. And, and, and here's why purpose, people don't understand purpose, but here's why purpose is so important. I was asked recently to give a talk to the world's largest manufacturer of tools, hammers, chisels and saws. So I thought, I know nothing about their industry. I know nothing about their consumer. So I went down to the big do-it-yourself stores in the US and I just stood for two days and watched the consumer at the point of purchase, the young millennials and Generation Z. And I went back to talk to this brand and I said, look, this generation isn't talking about your brand. They've never heard of you. They're not talking about your products, the hammer, the chisel, or the saw. They're not talking about the price point. They're talking about what's important to them. We're going to build our, or remodel our dream bathroom, our dream kitchen, build our dream house. I said, if you choose to create a purpose, it could be we're the brand who helps people build their dreams. And you can see the finance guys rolling their eyes going, oh, yeah, this guy's nuts. Well, okay, if you're the brand who can help people build their dreams, could you be in education? Yes. Sports? Yes. Hospitality? Yes. Finance? Yes. Banking? Yes. Insurance? Yes. Entertainment? Yes. Uh, hotels? Yeah. You can be in any industry you want. No, no, we make tools and we're really good at it. Okay, congratulations. Um, and we're going to expand into India and Mexico. They have a growing middle class. They will buy our tools. Uh, no, they won't. Why? Because 3D printers already exist, people. We're building houses in Houston, Texas today in less than seven days for the same price as an iPhone. So now fast forward 10 years. If I can print tables, chairs, and everything else in my living room, I w Amazon doesn't want to spend billions of dollars shipping 10 years from today. They want you to have a 3D printer in your house. I'm actually working with one of the largest snack manufacturers on 3D printing snacks in less than five years from today. Wow. Therefore, the so think of the money they're going to save on packaging and shipping and everything else. If I can print a third of what I buy on Amazon 10 years from today, what will I use a hammer, a chisel, or a saw for? I oh, know that's right, they'll be gone. Uh, but because they don't have a purpose, they've got nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I love the way how you think, Duncan. Very creative, always, you know, uh, in, in an extreme way, using the possibilities that we have and, and by doing so, creating new you know, use cases, new experiences. I, I can feel your energy all the way to Belgium from, uh, from your home in, in Orlando. So um, I would like to thank you for this, uh, for this conversation, for the insights that you shared. And it's, it's really cool to talk with you. I just ask one question and then, bam, you keep sharing your insights for, for minutes and minutes and minutes. It's very easy for someone to interview you because you just keep on going with sharing your because I talk too much. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. But it, it's almost impossible to stop you. And I don't want to stop you because you just keep on going. But it's also interesting. So I really enjoyed just listening to your expertise and listening to your experiences and your opinion. So thanks a lot for, for sharing that with us. Well, thank you for having me. And a very happy, healthy and safe new year to everybody in Belgium. Same to you, my friend. Take care. Bye-bye.